You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Twitter has a history of banning those who fail to toe the line in terms of progressive political orthodoxy. In particular, the social media corporation has banned numerous people for challenging gender identity ideology, for saying things like men aren't women, for example. Does Twitter have a woman problem? Or are there simply activists working behind the scene to present their ideas as more prominent than they actually are? Are these mistakes? Is this the impact of the algorithm? Is something more nefarious going on? Will things change now that Elon Musk has bought the company? I spoke with Holly Lawford-Smith, an associate professor in political philosophy in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, about Twitter's treatment of women, the impact of social media censorship, what the Elon Musk takeover could mean for women, and her soon-to-be-released book, Gender Critical Feminism. Hello, Holly. Thank you for joining me on the show today. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Very good. Good. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I know um, we're here to talk about a new book you have coming out, Gender Critical F- Feminism. But of course, a very exciting thing happened this week. Well, I find it very exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is that Elon Musk bought Twitter. And one of the things we have in common among several other things being female being hateful and bigoted etc etc um (laughs) is that uh we've both been permanently banned from twitter remind me when that happened to you when were you permanently banned i think it was about middle 2019 Okay, so sort of like shortly after me. I was banned at the end of 2018 in November. Um, yeah, I think cause I definitely remember the, the sort of um, – I was around for some of the like, bring back Megan Murphy for Raw. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it didn't work, sometimes. but <laughs> thank you for your efforts. <laughs> we all... <laughs> why, why was it that you were banned? Well, you know, I think just like – uh, just like you, um, they don't tell you, right? So I don't know. I mean, I know why I got my uh, temporary suspensions leading up to the permanent ban, and that was generally for either misgendering or uh, telling a trans person what their sex is. <laughs> so right. Those are the two cases. So I think it was sort of likely to be something in that ballpark, right? Like, doing what I think gender critical feminists should be allowed to do, which is acknowledge the reality of sex or use sex-based pronouns in cases where the person is like a vile misogynist. Um, so I'm sure it was something like that, but they, yeah, they never, they never tell you what your last offense is. Um, so it's a bit of a mystery. Did they send you the actual tweets? Like for me, they did actually, they didn't tell me what rule I broke. Like they didn't tell me what I did wrong or what was actually wrong with the tweets, but they did send me the tweets and said, 
you know, you're locked down for this tweet, you're locked down for this tweet. And then when I finally was permanently suspended, you're, you know, you're permanently suspended because of this tweet. Did they do that for you? Well, that's interesting. No. And I thought that you had the same experience as me because I thought you found out from Joe Rogan what the tweet was that you got banned for. And he had to ask them. I knew what the tweet was, but I didn't Uh, know why. Um, I've had the opposite experience. Like they, they, for the two temporary bans, they, they sent the tweet. But then when I was permanently banned, all I got was you have violated the hateful conduct policy and then a repetition of the policy, but no indication of what I did that violated that policy. Mm. Yeah, I had, so I had the two leading up to my permanent ban were men aren't women though so they locked me down for that and made me delete that tweet which I did because I didn't realize that like if if they lock you down and say like you broke the rules it's because of this tweet you need to delete this tweet to get back on like they'll say like you're locked down for 12 hours and to get back on you need to delete this tweet I didn't realize that if you actually delete the tweet it sort of like it counts as a mark against you. I didn't know that there was a there's like I think there's like a three strikes and you're out rule. Yeah. But if you delete yeah. the tweet then it's like accepting the strike against you. Yes. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever, I'll delete this tweet. And I was angry because it was ridiculous for me to be locked down and told I was breaking a rule for saying men aren't women though and the other one was um, like what's the difference between a trans woman and a man or something to that effect, which is a rhetorical question. Um, like, you know, it's trying to get at, I already know what the yeah. answer to that is, but I'm trying to get at, you know, yeah. what trans activists are saying the difference is, you know, like what's happening between a man becoming a trans woman, which is, you know, potentially nothing. It could just be one day you're a man, next day you're a trans woman. But anyway, and then the final tweet I was permanently suspended for was just, yeah, it's him in reference to Jonathan slash Jessica Yanid. Ah, oh, I see. Oh, well, that, I mean, I would, yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd like to know. Yeah. Um, but I also note that this thing about sort of whether you accept it by deleting, I did that the first time. I just went along with it, deleted it, had this 12 hours or whatever. But the second time, because um, the first time was misgendering and it was misgendering an absolute, like, you know, total misogynist that had been harassing me around the internet. But the second one I had just said to this person, you know, well, I don't know who you are, but if you're, you've said you're trans, if you're a trans man, then you're female. So you're welcome in women only spaces. Um but I wasn't willing to accept that, so I appealed rather than deleting the tweet. But that went on for two weeks with no reply, and they don't start. You know, then you're just off Twitter that whole time, right? So they don't start your clock <laughs> until you accept it and delete the tweet. So if they're going to be shit at moderating, like responding to appeals, which they are, you never get a human. You always just get a sort of either it takes forever or you just get a generic response instantly. So I think it felt like you didn't have a lot of choice, right, about whether to sort of delete the thing and accept the the strike. Um, You know, I just felt like I would have been waiting forever. Mm -hmm. How many times did you appeal your uh, suspension? I don't know, maybe 50. Like, I just do it. I just do it like once once a month or something now. In the beginning, I did it often. And I, you know, because people would say different things. Like, I remember Jane Claire Jones saying that she wrote this very long essay to them, sort of justifying 
<laughs> and then I was like, okay, maybe I'll try that. I'll try a short one. I'll try making a philosophical argument. So I tried all sorts of different strategies, um, but I never got anything other than a quick response with the automated text. Um, right. Yeah, I guess they're just a very – this like those really big corporations often are, right? It's just really hard to ever get through to anyone human. <laughs> and yeah. Make your yeah. I mean, I never, I never heard from a human. I appealed a few times and, and actually appealed again last week when I, when it looked like Elon was moving in, you know, when he first bought up that 9% of shares and it looked like he might take over and, and take the company private. But um, and I haven't heard back yet to my appeal, but yeah, the other times I appealed, I just got a form response saying your account's been permanently suspended and it's not going to be restored, but nobody ever explains anything to you on Rogan. They said, um, you know, Dorsey and, um, I can never say her name, so I apologize, but the J A Gaddy or something, the head of safety, um, she said, which this is a, full lie but she said well Megan had been warned repeatedly and she continued to break the rules and she'd been you know like harassing trans people and she'd been warned about harassing trans people which is all total bull I wasn't warned about anything I didn't know what I was doing like I had no idea people think that you're people I think people sometimes think that we're the ones who are being dishonest we're not being forthright about how mean we were being to trans people on Twitter or whatever but like or that we knew we were broken, breaking the rules and we just kept doing it. But I, you know, there was no rule. I had no idea what I was doing wrong, supposedly wrong in quotations, and therefore I couldn't fix it, even if I'd wanted to. Like, I don't know that I would have stopped misgendering because I don't want to call a man she, but, you know, at least I would like to know and have had the option if that were an actual rule that I was breaking at the time. Well, I wonder when that came in because I know they did change their hateful conduct policy in order to be more protecting of minorities, which just turned out to be mainly trans people. Um, and I remember when that change happened, shifting to the like zip mouth emoji whenever I used the correct pronouns because I, I felt like it was compelled speech, you know, in these cases where we're dealing with people that we were all just you know, furious about, <laughs> like uh, not not just for every trans person. So I know they did change that policy and people were sort of aware of it, um, but that might have happened after you got banned. Yeah, it happened like 20 minutes after I got banned, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> That's when they invented that rule. There was like a report, no, literally, I got banned, and then 20 minutes later a report was published on Pink News that there was a new rule <laughs> on Twitter against misgendering, and I was like, huh. That's interesting. <laughs> I wonder if this is connected at all or if anyone at Pink News is connected to anyone at Twitter. <laughs> oh, oh, let's see. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I get their rationale, right? Like, I, I mean, I sort of, you know, Twitter's super woke. Um, but, I, like, there's some interesting rationale for trying to make a online space that, like, if, sorry, if we didn't know what we knew about trans activism right just set that aside and take like a good faith minority group <laughs> um and then suppose that like they're just constantly and relentlessly bullied like they have, in fact are on a social media platform and then the platform tries to make some move to make that space more 
friendly for them, right? Like we could do that in terms of women. There's some new rules that you're not allowed to just do like disgusting, misogynistic slander at women all the time. And that makes the platform a little bit more comfortable for women to use like that. That's not obviously a bad move. Like, of course, you can have the debate about free speech and where the limits should be on insults and incitement and so on. Um, so I can sort of see what they were trying to do. I think I'm just still not clear on whether they they just believe that the whole trans movement is just like any other marginalized group. So they don't see the conflicts of interest and the the manipulation and you know, all the stuff that, that we know about, um, or whether they do see it and they know it's a particular ideology, but they want to advance it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I tend to think that there's like people working behind the scenes. Like I think that there's, you know, trans activists who are connected to people who have power or did have power in any case at Twitter who were pressuring Twitter to do this. Um, uh, and, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. I'm wary of sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but like, you know, it's obviously Twitter is connected to the Democrats. Um, they have a bias in favor of the Democrats versus, you know, Trump and Trump's Republican party or what once was Trump's Republican party. Um, and, you know, a, a bias towards what you could call if you wanted to woke ideology um and who yeah who knows if they actually buy it i i have a hard time believing a lot of people buy this kind of thing and you know we can talk about various things but we're talking about gender identity ideology so i for many years since i've been involved in this debate have wondered you know like are these people serious when they say trans women are women did they literally believe that a man who says he's a woman or says he's a trans woman is actually a woman you know what does that mean when they say that yeah I mean I can I think just people don't think it through that far right they just they don't they're not feminists for a start right so there's nothing at stake for them that they don't have all these kind of theory and movement driven reasons to want like a coherent definition of a woman or a consistent class or a like something that makes sense politically that they can just think oh yeah that person looks kind of pretty as women are supposed to be so yeah I guess they're a woman right like if there's absolutely nothing at stake for them um and I know that motivations will be different depending, you know, is that a like left wing woman or is it a conservative man, the people who go along with it, exactly why. But yeah, I just, I sort of think you have to be kind of deep in the weeds of feminism to, to, th- to see how much, like how much of a threat it is. Um, and just a lot of people don't see that. Right. Cause right. they're not. Right. Right. I mean, that was, I mean, that has been a big part of the reason why feminists were, and in some ways continue to be ignored on all this. And, you know, of course, people are talking a lot more nowadays about the impact of trans activism and gender identity ideology on women and women's rights in particular. People can see that, but 
they still I mean I'm I'm like perpetually mad and I try not to sound like bitter and petty but you know all these right-wing men and I don't have a problem with right-wing people I like anybody who's you know gonna say something or whatever like I'll respect anybody who's gonna engage in good faith and be honest and tell the truth and work to do what's right whether you know no matter what side of the political spectrum they're on but there's all these right-wing men who continuously you know they're building a platform by bravely speaking out about this issue and at the same time will say you know where are all the feminists on this like why aren't you know women speaking out about this and it's like we've been like desperately 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 trying to get anyone to listen to or pay attention to us and have been silenced and harassed and ostracized and fired and threatened you know like we were not even able to like hold events to discuss this issue barely we had to we had to fight and fight and fight to do so and in vancouver you know we had to get lawyers involved to ensure that we could just talk about this but they wouldn't know that right i mean someone like that is just gonna have not heard much about this and then it it does take a lot of being quite charitable to think, okay, well, are, are some women are likely to have been trying and being stopped, or it's just this is just something that no one's talking about. Like I can see how you would just assume, oh, of course, a feminist can get an op-ed through or a or an interview, or like, surely I would have heard of this. Um, like your average person's not going to think, oh, there's really serious gatekeeping going on, and. If people don't really believe it when you tell them what things are like, right? Um, right. And I suppose especially if you've always kind of had a platform and you've been able to get media yes. attention, which it's been easier for right-wing people to do that because they already have the right-wing media and, you know, people who are in powerful positions in the right and right-wing institutions on their side, whereas, you know, feminists haven't really engaged with that media much or those institutions or those politicians or what have you. And we've, of course, started to more in recent years because we've had to. And and I think it's a good thing. I know that that's like a controversial thing in feminism, but sorry. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. But like, in any case, I mean, I guess, do you think that there is an anti-woman bias at Twitter. I know something that, that that's been said quite a bit in regard to the fact that women have been banned from Twitter for, you know, talking or speaking against gender identity ideology and in favor of sex-based rights. And people will say, you know, like, Twitter hates women and, and so on and so forth. Do you find that to be true in any way? I mean, I would just, I think we need a lot more data and they're, they're not very transparent about it, right? Um, I would want to know how many men have been banned for really misogynistic, dehumanizing, degrading, sexist comments toward women, because it might be, for example, like that, the expanded hateful conduct policy, I can't actually remember now if it had sex as a characteristic, but suppose that Twitter just has a sort of woke you know, liberal intersectional feminism type take on the world. And then it is also policing men being misogynist towards women. It's just that it, it's it's policing tra- like gender identity ideology, taking that to be true. Um, 
then it could turn out that it's not that it really has an anti-woman problem. It's just that the received wisdom on feminism is like we protect the good women, <laughs> right? That are not picking on some other minority, right? So we're not going to protect racist women and so quote unquote transphobic women, but we're going to protect women in general. We're not going to let people call them these words. So I just don't know. I, I would want to see like what, what sorts of things are they counting as offenses against women and are they actually banning at similar rates? And so is it just that they've got a weird set of views or is it that, yeah, these are all literally just like tech bros <laughs> protecting their own. So it's just like, yeah, tech fraternity. And that's why it's protecting trans women. And it's why it doesn't care that much about abuse of women, which we know is a problem on social media and online platforms in general. I just don't know specifically for Twitter. So, yeah, I don't have a very good answer, I guess, to that. I just checked and sex is not listed. So hateful conduct means Gender? you. Yeah. So you you may not promote violence against, threaten or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, caste, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease, so like everything else. But they might mean sex by gender, right? So Oh, right, of course. I yeah. forgot about that. I, mean, I always forget that people don't understand what gender means. Yeah, and given that they've listed gender identity separately, that's at least a hat tip to the fact that they do care about protecting women. But, yeah, we would want to see what what they're actually doing, whether they're walking the walk on that. Um, what do you think? Because I've been wondering about this Elon Musk move. Like, I mean, I guess I'm just interested in your thoughts. Like, if it just sort of swings entirely the other way now, do you think that's going to be good for women? Because I guess, like, it's we're ta it's always a trade off, right? Like, we we sort of want to be. Well, you might disagree with this, but I think it's reasonable to want to be protected from certain sorts of abuse that just make online spaces a horrific place to be like the the um was it amnesty that did the big report and just showed how much abuse like members of parliament on twitter are getting um you know so this it's like yeah maybe these these spaces people do self-exclude because it's just such a horrible experience to be on them and so that's sort of something that speaks a bit in favor of the the current way Twitter is doing things, even though it hasn't worked for you and I, right, and other gender-critical people. So I'm just, like, when Musk takes over, does it just swing back the other way where it's sort of a big free-for-all unless you're literally breaking the law, but then it becomes very hostile and ugly for a lot of minority groups again? Well, when I was on Twitter, I was never protected from anything by Twitter, so okay. I don't think it would get worse and to be honest i don't really care that much about online harassment i think it's a bit silly um yeah. i mean i've experienced a lot of online harassment and you know i probably have a thicker skin than some people and i'm probably like used to it on a certain level but i i don't think i mean online harassment unless it's a, an actual violent threat um and or you know imagery of actual violence um you know somebody saying like i'm going to come to your house and murder you um that kind of thing 
I would kind of just let it go. And, and I, I, but I, I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily that, you know, if it, if, you know, Elon Musk does what he says he's going to do and truly makes this a free speech platform. I mean, first of all, I don't think that means there's going to be no moderation and no rules against, you know, like any conduct goes no matter what. But, you know, like, I don't, I guess I'm not thinking about it in terms of like, will this be good for women? I think it's just the good and right way to do things. And it's kind of the only way to do things in a, in a democracy. And if we genuinely want free speech and to deter what's been happening, which is that these massive corporations are manipulating politics and speech and facts and science and ideology in a pretty extreme way. I think, I mean, something that I read today that was just sort of saying what it's likely to look like based on smaller comments he's made was that it will be within the bounds of the law for each country. And that means countries that like the America that have very expansive protections of free speech, it will be almost anything goes, right? It just won't allow like incitement to violence or child pornography or um, anything that's kind of elsewhere regulated in the law. So I, I don't know, I guess I just, maybe you're right. Like it's, as a feminist, I'm interested in which which Twitter is worse for women. <laughs> like, um, but you're right that it might still be that it's justified on independent, like that's, that's just better for democracy, even if it's worse for some minorities. That, that might be true. Um, I mean, did Twitter's but, moderation policies ever help you? Like, did you ever feel like, oh, Twitter is a good place for women because Twitter has <laughs> these policies against hateful conduct or harassment or whatever? Uh, I mean, I guess I wasn't much of a reporter, so, but I don't, and again, I think like you, I have a pretty thick skin and I've sort of observed that relative to other people who go through similar things, but who seem to take it a lot harder. Um, so I remember like a, a lot of dickheads, but I don't really remember anything that was kind of very horrific. Um. I just don't think it's that bad. Like, I hate to, you know, I feel like a lot of people, you know, exaggerate their experience of online harassment, including, you know, trans-identified people, including, you know, liberal feminists, including, you know, uh, you know, all these, I would, I, I don't know what term, we say liberal feminists, but they're not liberal, so that term doesn't really, isn't super suitable, but third-wave feminists, mainstream feminists, whatever, feminists who aren't interested in sex-based rights for women, (laughs) like, those women would, I think, exaggerate the attacks that happened on, to women of color, and that happened to them as women, and I think trans-identified people do the same thing, and it's not because I don't think that there's, like, racism and misogyny and bigotry and homophobia online. There totally is, and I've experienced it, but I think you know, I kind of, you know, I'm kind of like, okay, like block, block those people. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's definitely right. I I just, I just, I think other people must be having a much worse experience than me. And then I'm reluctant to not believe them, you know, like women do talk about constant rape and death threats and graphic descriptions of ways that men want to fuck them. And, you know, like people that describe what they've been going through, it's pretty disgusting, and I mean, I 
I haven't had that. <laughs> so, but maybe they have. And then the question is like, what is it like for them? I mean, I don't know. It's like, is it worse to be banned than to be subject to rape and death threats? Way worse. That's a hard... <laughs> well, I don't, I just don't, I mean, I, I don't care that much about rape and death threats on Twitter. Like there, I've, I've received death threats that I was scared about and took seriously because they were coming from people in Vancouver and in relation to events I was having, and I was worried about getting physically attacked by people who were living in Vancouver, trans activists, and people who were coming to events. But yeah. that wasn't really related to what people were saying to me on Twitter. Those were, like, emails that we yeah. would get. Um, yeah, that's much. I would be much more worried about that as well. No, you're right. I mean, maybe there's a way just to think about it as, like, well, it's kind of unpleasant, but you'd rather have the platform and be able to speak and participate and block those people um, than be banned because <laughs> that somehow creates us a, a more welcoming environment for the other groups that haven't been banned. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just... I think it's the, like, to me, a lot of it is, like, the principle of the matter. Because I know, so now that, you know, Elon Musk has bought Twitter, there are people, I've seen people that are coming back who are banned and starting accounts. And I would be inclined to do that. But, you know, I filed another appeal to have my account restored last week, and I haven't heard back yet. And, you know, I want my old account back, partly because I had, you know, 20,000 followers, and I'd rather not start new, but also because... I think that I was wrongly banned and I feel like that would be like an admittance that I didn't break a rule and that it was unfair to ban me. But it wouldn't because it's not the same company anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't see how that would we, – we don't get our reputations back. We don't get a remedy in the newspapers stopping saying we were banned for hateful conduct. Like someone else owns the company now and they'll change the rules. We get our accounts back. That's just because Elon Musk – owns Twitter now, right? Like that, that reparation would only happen if current Twitter stopped being gender critical phobic or whatever you would call it and made a public apology, made a statement, did a move where they reinstated us and sort of said they had taken things too far. And that is just, that's not, that can't happen now, right? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I suppose I would just like, yeah, on principle, I kind of want my old account back. What do you want? Do you want to come back to Twitter? Um, it's a bit complicated. I want the right to, uh, but I think it would be, um, most prudent for me not to in fact take that right up <laughs> because I remember, and I've seen it happen to other people that it just becomes such a like toxic style of arguing. It, it seems really hard to me not to get drawn into behaving in this particular way where you're like really snarky really sort of jumping on people you know trying to do like clapbacks <laughs> and it, and it is a tempting um weapon right you know you have a colleague say some total outrageous lie about you and at the moment I can't do anything about that I just get sent screenshots all the time but if I had an account I, I could right and I could do what we're always you know, especially if you have a few followers tempted to do, you quote tweet them and you you draw attention to what a dickhead they are, and then and then the mob comes along. <laughs> it's like I don't know. I just think there's some sense in which you you can get really drawn into something and you don't realize how it looks from the outside. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. So I'm I'm torn on whether I, in fact, will go back or not. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, it's different. If I mean, for me, it's my employment and my job yes. and my ability to make a living. So to me, it was yeah. like an important tool. I also kind of like Twitter, to be honest. Like, I wasn't really using many other social media platforms, not for work anyway, just for private purposes because I didn't want to spend a bunch of time on a million different social media platforms but Twitter was yeah. sort of purposeful for me but also like I kind of enjoyed it I, I think Twitter's like the best space for jokes kind of thing <laughs> yeah no it can be really fun I think lots of aspects of the gender critical movement especially in the early days were really fun and I also really enjoyed it um but yeah, I think you and I are in a very different position when it comes to using it because I'm kind of constantly at risk of I say something slightly wrong, right? I mean, for a recent example, I use the wrong emoji <laughs> and then that can just trigger a whole shitstorm um, in terms of like, you know, maybe people would then make a formal complaint to the university and then I would have to go through that process. So it's I just think, uh, there's certain risks of having any social media, um, but especially having it if you're a person who's already being targeted all the time and your employment can actually be at risk from a from a bad move. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, do you think do you think that being banned from Twitter matters? Like, you know, for people whose I don't know, maybe whose people people whose jobs and livelihood don't depend on social media but for people who are just using it for fun you know for average citizens maybe for people who work at universities who are going to have employment regardless of whether or not they tweet like do you think this is a an important issue yeah i do i mean it's like removing you from democratic deliberation right this is one of the ways that we participate in global conversations um, you have a sort of lottery-like chance of being listened to, right? <laughs> a lot of the time you're just screaming into the void, but occasionally you connect to something really interesting and, you know, like you can get interesting replies and you can get picked up by, you know, someone that has more of a following. I think it is important. Um, and I personally just sort of found it really difficult because it was the way, the main way that I connected with the other gender critical feminists. And Australia is pretty like isolated in that respect, right? Like this stuff was all going on mainly in the UK originally. Um, and I had been here, I had a job here and was sort of a bit networked in. And then I had been back a few times, you know, but then I was just in Australia and that was my main way of like, I would ask, you know, I'm writing papers or working on my book and I would ask a question and lots of people that I'm linked in with here would answer it. And, you know, that was really helpful to have that whole network of people right at your fingertips and to be able to like bounce ideas. That's stuff that you can't really recreate elsewhere. Of course, I could have tried to do it on over it or spinster or mum's net or, or, or whatever. But yeah, I, I felt like I definitely did lose something by getting banned. And I'm sure a lot of people feel like that. They just, they lose a network, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, that was the other thing that I think people kind of didn't really understand about the getting banned thing. I mean, for me, it was 
yeah, I mean, access to an audience, sharing my work, being part of the conversation, like you kind of get forgotten a little bit, but also like, it's really, really hard to contact people and stay in contact with people if you're not on Twitter, because it's not like you have access to, you know, thousands of people's email addresses and there's not really any other way of staying in touch and getting in touch and you know it's hard to even know what's going on really like if you're engaged in this kind of like political work or activism or whatever yeah yep agreed yeah so um do you think that there is such a thing as hate speech i mean social media companies And governments, including, you know, the Canadian government, I think probably governments in Australia as well, you can speak to this more specifically, are talking about these, like, online hate speech bills and trying to regulate and limit and stop online hate. And I'm pretty skeptical skeptical about their motivations, but also I tend to in a lot of ways, I don't really believe in hate speech as it's defined by these kinds of people, but also I sort of, I don't think that hate speech should be illegal, I suppose, but I'm curious to know if you think that hate speech is a thing and if we should be doing something about it. Um, I think I do think it's a thing. And I don't think I'm sort of an a free speech absolutist so I, I think you just have to deal with the really hard questions of exactly you know what are the most persecuted groups um you know there are just this particular slurs for you know members of indigenous groups or whatever where they they're just they're so hurtful right like you you grow up hearing those words all the time and they're just they're spat at you um and then, you know, that sort of feeling like someone's just picking and picking and picking. And so the, the 50th time you hear it, you you really snap. I think there is that phenomenon that some genuine minority groups feel associated with certain kinds of words or phrases or accusations. I think that probably, yeah, that is hate speech um, and maybe in certain forums, yeah, it should be regulated. So... But, yeah, there's all these hard questions left over, right? Like, well, exactly which minority groups are in that position and, and exactly what are the, the terms or words and how do you how do you do that without letting anyone weaponize the process? Because, of course, that's what we're most worried about when it comes to, um, so you know, Victoria is likely to put vilification laws through, which is our version of that, and then try to protect three different ways of protecting trans people you know, sex characteristics, gender identity, gender. <laughs> and it's like, how, how do you make sure that the testimony that you're getting from these minority groups is sincere? Like they're really reporting extreme distress based on a lifetime of bullying and social exclusion rather than just trying to get their enemies shut up. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, because we've been in this fight, right, we know that trans activists are often just trying to get us shut up it's not that there's some it's not that for the like merely self-identifying middle-aged prisoner or whatever he actually feels traumatized when he hears himself being called he it's just not plausible 
right? So he's just weaponizing that claim against us. But how do you tell the difference between that person and maybe the person who really has had dysphoria since childhood uh, and is so, like, you know, emotionally unstable that they will get, you know, what's catastrophic for them to have their, their sense of themselves challenged? I don't know. Like, these are just extremely hard questions for for lawmakers and policy people, right? And I haven't really thought about it enough. I only really started looking into hate speech and, and harmful speech in connection with gender critical speech because we were so often accused of it. So my next book has two papers on whether gender critical speech is hate speech or harmful speech. So I did a bit of uh, research relating to those, but I haven't really thought about it more broadly, right? Like whether we should have those rules at all on which kinds of groups. So I think I'm probably, it sounds like I'm a bit more sympathetic than you, but it's not like I really have any firm answers as to what. I mean, I guess it's unfortunate because it's sort of come to the point that it's like the boy who cried wolf, at least in the way that I relate to claims of abuse and harassment and hate speech, because we're so accustomed now to those terms being stretched so far out of the realm of what actually would constitute abuse. Like you say, like referring to a man as he is not like an abusive thing to do. And it doesn't make any sense that a man would be traumatized by that. And if he genuinely was traumatized by that, I mean, he has really serious like mental health issues and that's not really the fault of somebody else or the responsibility of somebody else to like mitigate that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you could even take seriously, which, you know, I'm sure many of us in the movement disagree about, but I think we could take seriously that there is a tiny proportion of, uh, you know, people who were what we would have used to call like true trans, right? Like they are gender dysphoric from early in childhood. That feeling persists. It's extremely distressing to them. They've like gone through a meaningful transition and they are really like, they think they're passing. And so it's really distressing to them to be called he because it, it, it makes them realize that they're not as successfully transitioned as they believe, right? So we, you can get in the headspace of thinking that person might be genuinely distressed by such a word, but that doesn't justify the 98% of these, well, I don't know what we, want to, what we want to call what's going on today, right? Where it's like, this is kind of gender experimentation where anyone can be a woman. And then you literally just have this middle-aged man who's never had gender dysphoria, who's maybe just watched a lot of porn and decides that that's something that he wants to be that there's just no credible case to be made, right? That that person is psychologically distressed by being called he in line with his sex when he's not even making any effort not to look his sex. So it's like, you could go the whole way and say, like, no man could be distressed by this. But you could also just grant, well, yeah, the tiny proportions of real, you know, quote, unquote, true transsexuals or whatever, they might be distressed. Grant that. But still, the whole movement today is to such a huge proportion, not those people. Could we really then justify shutting down feminist speech and correctly sexed pronouns for the whole world? just because of these like 2% of the 100% of people <laughs> that would genuinely be distressed that seems that seems bizarre yeah and i mean i have genuine sympathy for those kinds of people you know the people who have 
you know, this genuine experience of what's called gender dysphoria. So maybe it's like a distress, a very intense, overwhelming distress at the fact that your body appears to be female and not male or vice versa. Um, and like, you feel like a desperate need to transition and like, if transition actually makes you feel better, good for you. And, and I can see that somebody might feel distressed when they weren't passing partly because like Jesus Christ, like you go through so much, like most, most trans identified people are not going through all of these extensive surgeries and hormone treatments are just saying, you know, online, I'm trans or I'm they or whatever it is. But the people who are, I mean, those are really, that's a really big deal. Those surgeries are really extensive and intense. And to go through all of that and then to come out the other end and people are, still don't buy you yeah. as a woman would be pretty upsetting. Yeah, exactly. But I think somehow there's not much social literacy around that 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 difference, right? Within the trans community, there's just this buying of the idea that yeah, there's this, these people trans, and it's some sort of innate thing, and it works kind of like sexual orientation, and everyone who says they're trans is trans, and so we should speak in these particular languages about all of them because they're all extremely distressed. Otherwise, that's just not true. And you cannot justify shutting down feminist speech on that basis. And that's what Twitter did, right? They just took the whole thing at face value. They just ignored all of the information that's pretty readily available, right, about the, like, huge increases in trans identification among the youngest cohorts. And they just, and then they just in, in, introduced this hateful conduct policy that acted like they were all in the position of those people you just described, the truly distressed uh, gender dysphoric people the whole thing is just yeah bizarre and well, that's yeah. what this sorry too the with the laws right i mean that it's the same thing it's taking this whole movement at face value when they shouldn't be yeah and i mean and 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 that issue around like people going through this surgical and hormonal you know transition if you want to call it that you know um cross-sex surgery or whatever um, and them coming out the other end and still not passing or, you know, still not being a literal woman, people still thinking you're a man. I mean, that's something that I think is kind of the fault of surgeons and yes. these like doctors who are selling them on this idea that if they do all these things, they'll look like a real woman and people will believe them, believe that they're a real woman or that they'll be like, that's a really cruel lie to tell someone. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I think there's a lot of responsibility to go around and what's happening um, to that cohort at the moment. Very unrealistic expectations. Um. So, so you have a new book coming out, Gender Critical Feminism. Um, what does gender critical feminism mean? Let's start with that. Well, I'm kind of arguing in the book um, that it's the new iteration of radical feminism and I think that I make a coherent case for this but I also think it might be totally unsurprising to some people in the movement and quite surprising to others because <laughs> I think there's definitely some people involved in the movement who kind of got attracted to it about the trans issue um, and then for them and for a lot of outsiders 
the whole movement really just is about right opposition to gender identity ideology. But I found it really interesting when you really look into what people's reasons are, right? So Kelly J is a really great example for me. Like the first video that she did, um, I think it was just before the UK consultation on the Gender Recognition Act launched, she did this video, but just perfectly she states what her opposition is to this kind of move to, to self-ID. And it's just all these ways in which this move would pose a threat to women's sex-based rights and interests, right? And so much of this is what's at the core of women's concerns about the ideology. Um, and I think that then just takes us back to this much more important feminist insight about women as a sex caste and trying to come to grips with exactly what that means, who is this group of people, in what way are they oppressed, how is that explained? So I'm sort of trying to make the case even to people that maybe don't think this is a broader feminist movement that it actually is. And it links in in these ways with what the radical feminists in the second wave were trying to do. Um, and then also to open up that if that's right, it means there's a broader agenda, right? So when we're done with trans, you know, dust off your, <laughs> whatever it's called, there's like a lot more to do and the sex industry is one thing. And, um, there are a lot of other things too. So that's my, that's my sort of main, move early on in the book I think I mean it's tough these days to want to identify yourself with feminism or as a feminist if you're you know if you're involved in the women's movement in the way that people like you and I are um because I think so much of the so-called feminist movement over the past like I don't know, 10, 15 years has been really stupid and silly and actually working in opposition to women's rights and to the liberation of women. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I wonder, like, do you want to continue attaching yourself to that label or do you want to kind of save that label at all? Does it matter? I think it does. I mean, I'm, I'm, I note in the book when I talk about both you and Kelly J that you know, your own labels don't match my description of you, right? <laughs> so I think it's by your deeds and um, content, you both are radical feminists slash gender critical feminists, but you have your reasons that you've both kind of stated um, pretty clearly for why you don't identify with that label. And I completely understand those reasons, right? Like you want to distance yourself from the popular understanding of what that word means what feminist means which is like a lot of really nonsense content I kind of just want to reclaim it right so I want to like I want a feminism that deserves the name and I think we can fight for that so that's one of the things I'm trying to do like criticize the elements of this dominant popular form of feminism just point out where it makes no sense at all or it's not working in women's interests and say what a, what something that deserves that name would have to look like. So to defend a version of feminism that is about women, by women, for women, right? And then try to articulate, you know, what would be on the agenda of that kind of feminism. I think we need it, like, desperately. We need a resurgent, female-centered feminist movement. And we've kind of got all this momentum out of these issues 
starting to be discussed, right? Like, well, women's sport is under threat and women's safety is being compromised in prisons. And there is this question again about what this group is and why exactly they need protection and what their history is. And I think we can take advantage of that moment and try to like get a great new feminism going. So maybe I'm just op a bit optimistic. I might turn out to be wrongly so, <laughs> but, but I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is what has been interesting about all this, like this massive backlash against women's rights and feminism, essentially, although it's not framed as such by many, um, yeah. is that we really had to be reminded of why women's rights matter and what women's yeah. rights are. Yep. Absolutely. But, yeah. And I mean, that's something that had been really completely forgotten by the third wave, as far as I can tell you. I mean, you're working in academia. What's your, what's been your experience working with like young women and talking about feminism with young women? You know, it's actually been great. I, uh, I teach this course, a second year course, um, just called Feminism, but within the philosophy department. And my sense is that they don't know what they're missing, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like I'm teaching feminism as a female-centered course. And they, because they just took it, don't know that if they had taken gender studies instead, they would have been taught all this nonsense about how it's selfish, exclusionary white feminism to be talking mainly about women and how we should spend most of our time talking about sexual minorities and masculinity and trans women. And, you know, my, I, my sense is that women come in knowing, you know, from, from looking at Instagram or whatever, or from knowing about porn, that there's lots of issues for women and they expect a feminism course to be about women, but then they get enculturated into this kind of woke, you know, quote unquote progressive orthodoxy where it's like they have to constantly apologize about who, who they are and not center themselves and think about someone else's vulnerabilities and do everything intersectionally. So they take a million things into account at once that they sort of get harangued into doing things that way over the duration of a gender studies course. But if they if they haven't already had that happen to them, they're none the wiser about like, the difference between the courses. So I think I might be the only person, because I did a sort of survey for the book on how many women's studies as opposed to gender studies courses there are left in Australia, and it's basically none. Um, one sort of hybrid women's studies course with gender studies, and then everything else is seems to be gender studies. And then there's, and then I'm just, I'm just teaching fem proper feminism. <laughs> so, I, my sense is they respond really well and they don't know. Um, they don't know that it could have been a lot of stuff that wasn't about them. But of course, there are the, the dissidents, right? There are the people that have taken a gender studies course. And so uh, they hear the word woman or gender and they just interpret it in terms of gender identity or trans women. And then if I say things where, where it's hard to make that translation, it becomes a bit dissonant. Um, so there were a few students where I remember I just, you know, I used the word woman throughout the whole course and I was talking about females, but you know, things like women being excluded from work early on or whatever, but then there'd be a certain point in time where we would start talking about gender identity and then the, and then it, the way they had been translating my meaning 
it became clear that it couldn't it couldn't work. So then then you have to sort of talk about it more. But yeah. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because the solution to the problem of women being erased from women's studies essentially in that that whole discipline becoming gender studies and you know really about theory and postmodern theory rather than you know material reality and what's actually happened to women over centuries it seems like the solution is to just teach you know feminism or about the women's rights movement or teach about women in other faculties like you know philosophy or history or something like that yep and i I think you would still get the there would still be the kind of super woke students that would complain that it was you know they, they would expect to see even something billed as being about women including trans women and they they often like I have people email me before the course starts just checking that, that you know I'm going to be talking about an, enough other countries that are poorer and you know so they they very much want the um diversity and the that intersectionality stuff they expect that to be a part of it and to some extent those requests are reasonable right like yeah you cannot want a course to all be about Australian feminism or whatever um so you would still get those people but you're right like women's history like that that could very naturally belong and be taught in the history department and at least then we haven't lost the content altogether which I think for many years we just had there just is no genuinely women's stuff being taught and I mean a lot of people blame feminism and feminists and academic you know so-called women's studies for what's happened around gender identity ideology taking hold. Do you think that is true at all? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know to what degree, and I lines of influence run between postmodernism more generally, queer studies more generally, the various strands of third wave plus feminism. So the sort of big move toward intersectionality and the idea that feminism is for everybody. Um, you know, I don't know how all of that sort of exactly feeds into the cultural idea of what feminism is now. Um, certainly some of those ideas are, are coming out of academia and certainly a lot of, feminists today like feminist philosophers or whatever just seem to be absolutely cheerfully accepting all of the orthodoxy and and pushing it right so your feminism has to be trans inclusive and intersectional and um i don't know standpointy right like really taking seriously that people that are differently located have these specialist knowledges and we should defer to them and um I don't know. There's just a lot of stuff where I think if you come along not knowing anything about it, just you come along like I did as a philosopher, then you just have a lot of questions, <laughs> which is maybe just what my book is. It's like, what's going on here? You know, like an outsider. <laughs> it's just like all these ideas that everyone seems to be like cheerfully taking for granted and then starting from. A lot of them just look really bizarre and implausible and um, <laughs> you want to know what's going on here. So, yeah, I, I don't know. What's been your experience speaking out about gender gender identity ideology and, you know, working in academia? A lot of women have really 
awful experiences attempting to do this? What what has your experience been like? I mean, uh, it's been challenging at times. There's definitely, um, you know, things where you should you sh- you take for granted how they'll go when you work on a non-controversial topic, right? Like it's very normal to just write a draft paper that's probably got some mistakes, right? Like you do the best you can by yourself, but it's a pretty collaborative discipline, philosophy. So you'll generally give that talk and then the style of the discipline is that everyone just tells you why you're wrong for an hour. <laughs> so you, sometimes like when you're a grad student, you go away absolutely crushed and it takes three months to get the courage up to revise the paper. <laughs> but it's a really helpful process, right? Because you've got such great criticism. It's so constructive. You know exactly all the things that don't work and the mistakes you've made and you can sort of rally and make the paper a lot stronger. That community aspect when you work on something controversial, that just that disappears, right? So everybody that would be best qualified and feel most strongly to disagree with me on gender critical, radical feminist topics, absolutely flatly refuses to have anything to do with me. And that's true for all of us doing this kind of work in, in academia, I think. So you don't get that. And actually, it's it's much harder because then their arguments are often quite bad. <laughs> like sometimes they're not even making them right. So if it's just sort of in the um, public sphere, there'll just be assertions. So, but then sometimes the academics will make, because the thing is progressive, it seems to be like getting through more easily into the journals or at conferences or, or whatever. But then, so you're sort of having to do two jobs at once. Like you have to create their arguments for them or strengthen the argument so that they're better and argue with them and not have them around to tell you what you're getting wrong. (laughs) So you're just in this little room doing all of the jobs by yourself (laughs) because it's a controversial topic. So that's definitely weird. It's been like a weird aspect of it. But, but apart from that, I think it's just the unpleasantness, right? Of like signing up for a conference and then having a bunch of people do an open letter, trying to get you taken off the program and, you never know when you're going to, get, going to get complaints. Like you give a lecture and then the students find it controversial. So they complain about you. It, it's just those things. And I think that's what lots of women in my position, like working in academia have, have, have had, right. It's those sorts of like, yeah, getting deplatformed or getting complaints or trying to teach perfectly ordinary things that you should be able to talk about respectfully, but then having people react really hysterically um, to the fact that you're teaching them. I mean, this just happened yesterday. Like I gave a, a talk in the UK on conversion therapy bans. Um, and I should just be able to give a draft paper and be a bit wrong and get some feedback and then go on, right? But of course it became a whole thing because the students decided if I'm talking about conversion therapy, I must be pro-torture of trans people. <laughs> I don't know where they get this idea, right? But that's they start tweeting that and then they, they're complaining to the university and they're kicking up a big fuss and then it's in the media and you know, so the stakes become a lot higher for this tiny draft talk that you should be giving where you just want to get a bit of feedback from your colleagues. Um, but I don't know, it could be a lot worse. It, it, it really could. And and you did, of course, get some backlash against this book already, which hasn't even come out yet. Yeah, 
um, it, there was a letter to the Oxford University Press. Um, I'm just going to read a quote from it. Um, this this letter that who wrote this letter? Uh, there's two groups. I'm not sure which one you have. One is the OUP USA Guild, which I don't exactly know what it means. Maybe people that work for Oxford University Press in the UK or in some sort of union. I don't know what guild means. But okay. um, and then the other one was broader. It was like people involved in academia who had some connection to OUP. Maybe they'd been authors of books with them, or maybe they'd done reviewing for them. So some tenuous connection to the press. Um, I think one's called petition and one's called something different. So I don't know which one. Oh, okay. So, okay, this... The long one or the short is, one? Um, here. We write to express our profound disappointment at OUP's forthcoming publication of the book Gender Critical Feminism by Holly Lothbard Smith, a high-profile anti-trans rights activist whose academic <laughs> credentials have been thoroughly eclipsed by her public mobilization of transphobic rhetoric and bigotry with Holly, the explicit objective of denying trans people the right to live freely or to exist at all. That's pretty mean, Holly. I just, it's funny, it's just hilarious to me. Like they, they slip it in, right? It's like, there's no evidence anywhere, but then they just seems like on every occasion they manage to slip in this existence claim. <laughs> I just don't know. I actually did a thorough. The right to live freely. Like also, I mean, an explicit with the explicit objective of denying, like that's yeah, your explicit I mean, aim. Like your whole aim in talking about these things is to deny trans people the right to live freely or to exist at all. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that um, I've been trying to sort of say about gender critical feminism, right? Like we, it's not about trans people. Like it's not, mm -hmm. it's about sex. It's a feminist project. It just has this implication for current trans ideology because that, that ideology is encroaching on and undermining sex and we need that right but it's not and this is why I got so um I can't remember what talk it was in but there was a there was a webinar where I think it was Julia Long who said something like we should own the label anti-trans feminists I'm not getting the exact phrasing right but it was definitely it involved the word anti-trans and she was sort of saying are, are, like we should own that because we are <laughs> just like that is, that's that's crazy, right? Because that's exactly accepting our enemies' characterization of us, which centers them in our project. Mm. Like our project mm. is about women. It just has this side implication that it excludes men. We're not here just being mean to men. That's not our motivation, right, or our reason or our explanation. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like... I mean, yeah, I find that that paragraph and that framing just, I mean, it's like so narcissistic and self-absorbed. Yes. It's like, no, we're not talking about you. We're talking about women and women's rights. And we just keep repeating ourselves over and over and over. And then you still have the nerve to say, you know, you're going out of your way to deny, like, it's like, who cares? I don't, you know, like, I don't care what you do in your personal life. 
I don't care if you want to dress like a woman, if you're a man, I don't care if you want to call yourself, you know, I don't know, Sarah, but once it starts getting into a legal context or a policy context and there start to be broader implications for an entire group of people, like women, for example, or, you know, once it's starting to hurt kids, then, you know, it really does become an issue. I guess, like, in some ways, I guess I could see, I don't know what Julia Long's argument is around that statement is, but I could see that making sense in terms of, like, I don't know, like, I'm opposed to, like, I don't believe that there's such a thing as trans, so it's not, I wouldn't say, oh, well, I'm against individuals right. who identify as trans per se, but the idea of transgenderism doesn't make sense, and the idea that you can transition to be the opposite sex doesn't make sense. Like, there's no such thing as a trans person, as far as I'm concerned. There's people who are male or female who maybe want to look different than they look or dress different than how, you know, like a traditional man might dress or, you know, they, they have some sort of like mental illness that could be called gender dysphoria. So, but I don't, I mean, I don't know what she meant by that. So that but might still, be something even, different. I mean, I take your point, but even if she, what she meant by anti-trans or anti-transgender was anti gender identity ideology still saying it that way centers them and our project right we're not we don't only care about sex-based rights because there happen to be these men claiming to be women right like we care about sex-based rights because we we want like we care about women and we care about all the harms that have been done and are being done to women and this is just the latest threat or challenge to that project. So I still think even calling yourself anti-gender identity ideology, feminist or whatever is silly <laughs> because it's, it makes it about them. They're just one piece of why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would never have started talking about any of this stuff had it not been for the impact or potential impact as I saw it, which of course came to fruition on women's rights. And I do think there are other issues at hand in terms of like compelled speech and just being able to speak about material reality and everyone being gaslighted and that kids are being transitioned and so on and so forth. But the, I mean, I agree with you. I agree that framing this as like, anti-trans I think that's probably just confusing for people to hear also because the arguments yeah. are about protecting people from harm who are impacted by this legislation and ideology it's not really what about it what individuals are feeling no. or wanting to do you know in their private lives but when you say you came to this for those reasons I mean you were writing about a broad range of issues that fall under the radical feminist umbrella before this topic, right? Or at least independently of that topic. And yeah, that's for ages. One of the things I'm trying to do is really connect those things up and show that th these are all to do with having a strong sense of women as a sex cast and being interested in all the aspects in, of her oppression trying to understand her situation and 
and what looks normal or looks like nature but is actually culture. So I think because I see it as gender, like this current thing that gender critical feminists are really interested in at the moment, that's just interesting because like it's a current challenge to the concept of sex, which we need for our discussion of sex cast. That's like, yeah, but we might also be interested in surrogacy or, or pornography or child brides or, you know, so maybe like, I think what, what you said just then sort of treats it as a separate, like, yeah, there's this, just this kind of feminist stuff that's interested in trans issues. Whereas I think, no, there's just this huge thing that's interested in sex cast. And one of its preoccupations at the moment is the challenge of gender identity ideology. Mm-hmm. But that will, does that make sense? It does. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of people, but I think there's a ton of women who've been brought over to this issue specifically because of the gender identity ideology trans activism thing like i know a ton of women who are like oh i didn't even identify as a feminist i didn't care about feminism i thought it was stupid i wasn't even paying attention and then all this stuff happened and now i feel like i'm like a radical feminist (laughs) like i'm you know i realize like oh man we have got to fight for women's rights but they weren't really doing anything or paying attention or interested in feminism prior no agreed but if you think about any other issue that sucks someone into feminism, you wouldn't think that they just had a single issue interest, right? Like if if someone just got really passionate about surrogacy rights or really passionate about, you know, exploitation of women and prostitution or whatever. And then they, you know, I think we would have a better understanding that like, yeah, because they care about women and they're interested in protecting from harms to women and girls and, And it's an easy step from there to caring about other things like FGM or whatever, right? Like, so that's your entry point into feminism is one thing. Maybe you come at it from a certain issue, but, but once you're there, you see how related these things are and you might end up being interested in a broader range of issues or, or interested in everything. So the mere fact that the, the gender identity stuff has been an entry point for a lot of women, I think the fact that why people care about it has so much to do with sex and sex-based rights means that they've just found feminism, right? Like they, 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 they care about feminism now, and that might open up a really broad range of issues after this thing is done, I hope. Yeah, possibly. Tell me um, when the book will be out and and how people can get it. And, you know... Also, why why should people read it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book is scheduled to be published on the 12th of May, so that's pretty soon. Uh, you can currently pre-order it if you're an excitable type of person, which um, maybe it's good because it sends a little signal of excitement to the publisher, and that might make them publish gender-critical work more in the future. So uh, there's a link on my website, which is just hollylawford-smith.org, just on the page that it will take you to first. There's a link to the um, press, and there's also a discount code that gives you 30, 30% off. Um, I doubt very much that it will be like in bookshops because academic books by that press I don't think very often are. So I think you would probably have to order it online uh, if you're in the UK in either case, and then it will be in other countries, I think two, two months or so after that. Why should people read it? Um, I guess people who 
don't know much about the issue or are on the fence about the issue or are just kind of interested, I think there'll be lots of helpful stuff and therefore, you know, lot there's arguments and ideas and you can sort of make up your mind. I think people that are in the movement and think of themselves as gender critical feminists, it will be it will be at least interesting to kind of see someone try to make this kind of coherent case for what the what the theory and movement is and what our agenda is and I'll be really interested, you know, how much people disagree with me because I I tried I was very sort of well linked in in the first couple of years and trying to kind of consult pretty widely uh, on the ideas and make sure they were shared but um you know then I was kicked off Twitter and there was a pandemic and <laughs> so it might be that I've sort of veered off on my own weird thing and I know that in particular the stuff about intersectionality will be the thing where um I'm sort of trying to persuade people of something rather than just sort of represent what a lot of people already think. Whereas I think what I have to say about trans and the sex industry is, is pretty widely shared. Um, so yeah, I'm super interested to hear, you know, what, what people think about it if they do read it. Great. Well, I'm interested as well. Um, thanks for talking with me today. It was great to, to talk with you. It's been a while. Um, I, I do hope that we'll get to see each other in person yeah. again someday. And the last time was in New Zealand, of course, pre-pandemic. Yes, that was fun. Okay, well, well good luck with everything and uh, enjoy your, your time in the UK. Yeah, thank you. Nice talking you to you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.